the flush. So fast, it hardly seems real. So vivid, the moment freezes in time before erupting in a blur of spurs and feathers. It's why we changed the way upland loads are built with Prairie Storm. Exclusive flight control flex wad technology and a mix of copper plated lead and flight stopper pellets combine to create dense, deadly shot strings through any choke. Longer shots, more power, fewer missed birds. Only from Federal. This episode of the Flush Podcast is brought to you by North Dakota Tourism, Waltons, Nutrisource Pet Foods, Aluma Trailers, Federal Ammunition, and by Onyx Hunt. My guest today is Tim Brown. If you're on Instagram, you might know him as the Bearded Uplander. Tim is currently in the middle of conducting his annual roadside pheasant counts in Iowa. We'll find out what he's seeing and why you can start getting pumped up for this hunting season. It's time to start planning your next bird hunt. If you've listened to this podcast for any time at all, then you know where I'm about to send you. That's to North Dakota. Why? Well, it's one of the greatest places on earth to watch a bird dog in the field. That's why. In North Dakota, you can experience a waterfall hunt during the peak of the fall migration and have the best upland hunt all in the same day. I've done it many times. That's why I know it's true. Plus, this year, the spring pheasant crowing counts were up 30% from last year, and the weather has been looking good for a strong hatch. Water levels are up way up, which means the total number of wetlands are up too, 76% above the long-term average, and that means more ducks and geese. The state's breeding duck index was the 23rd highest on record this year, 39% above the long-term average at 3.4 million. All of this means more pheasants than last year, more ducks than last year, and I'm hearing excellent reports about the sharp-tailed grouse and Hungarian partridge too. Start planning your world-class hunt in North Dakota at hellond.com. All right, here we go. Welcome to this week's episode of the Flush Podcast. I am your host, Travis Frank, and Brandon Morton is our producer, Brandon. Welcome back from your vacation. Is it really a vacation if I'm texting you every day, though? I mean, at least I got to get away for a couple days. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, it was beautiful. I went to uh, Lake McCarthy uh, Beach State Park. Recommend it. 1010. It's a perfect place. And what was the highlight? Oh, the highlight was the fact that uh, I got a let our uh, wild dog loose. <laughs> Wait, what? Back. Yeah, so we got the Sherman. Our wild dog about a year ago. Yeah. Uh, so. Oh, your what? Your dog got loose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he just <laughs> ran free and came back. It was like the coolest thing ever. So. Oh, welcome to the club. Yeah, I know. <laughs> how did He's it no feel? Daisy. He's no Daisy. Yeah. Well, how did it feel? It was pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, when did it, when you were going through it, or when he came back? He broke out of the tent early this morning, so it was kind of tense for a minute, but pretty okay. cool. Oh. No pun intended there. Yeah, huh? Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, welcome back. Glad to have you. Thank Sorry you. for bothering you on vacation, but I appreciate you making time so we can keep this uh, podcast rolling, you know, one a week, every week from here until we end time. Um, but this week we have uh, Tim Brown, who is no stranger to the podcast. Tim, before I bring you on the show, I'm going to read a story. Okay. Oh, my. Yeah, well, it's not really to you. I mean, you can okay, go get good. a cup of coffee if you want, um, but it's more, it's when, okay, so we get, 
regular stories submitted and I enjoy reading all of them. But this one here, I don't know why. It just, it stood out to me. I, I had fun reading it. It goes like this. To the Flush Crew. First off, I have been contemplating contacting you for years. I have been a fan of your show since the beginning and have seen every episode. That being said, I am contacting you from kind of a different angle than normal. As a kid growing up outside of Ithaca, New York, my dad started me hunting when I was young. He was a rabbit hunter. We always had a beagle that was both a rabbit chasing fool and a family dog. My intro to hunting was rabbits. We didn't hunt deer or birds. We hunted rabbits. Some of my best memories I have as a kid were of rabbit hunts with my dad and our friends. In 1968, my parents were trendsetters in what is now America's most popular recreational activity, divorce. A long story shortened, we moved away, school activities, college, and life moves on. I can remember my junior year in college when my dad called me and told me that he had Babe, my beagle and best pal growing up, put down. It crushed me. Let's move ahead. I got my first lab named Bud. Got him from a family that lived in Henry's Lake in Idaho. I was a park ranger at Old Faithful at the time, and it was January. I took him into the park, tucked inside my snowmobile suit. The 30-mile ride from West Yellowstone for the little guy was pretty exciting and really wet for me. Anyway, let's get to the point here. I hunted labs and GSPs for years and put a lab named Bob in the Master National Hall of Fame. In 2001, I moved to southeastern Pennsylvania. If you know anything about PA, you know that upland hunting here is pitiful on a great day. Pheasants are put in take and there are no grouse to speak of. Waterfowl hunting is no better. I was asked to give a talk at a local wild game dinner on training a lab for a hunt test. While at the dinner, I had the chance to have fried rabbit. I had forgotten how good it was. I went home that night and said, honey, we're getting a beagle. Not long after that, we got Arthur, then Jerry, Shorty, Fred, and Joe. My reason for contacting you is that projects that improve upland bird habitat also improve habitat for a lot of other critters like rabbits. Anyway, I've been retired since 2009 and told my beagles from Maine to South Carolina hunting rabbits and hares. If you get a wild hare and want to change things up a bit, give me a call. I have beagles will travel. I guarantee other than the shooting, it will be a lot noisier. Thank you for the show. He left his name, but I will leave it out because when I responded, he was okay with me reading the story and just asked that I would not include his name in it. But... I loved the story. It's a great I love, story. I love the story. And it is a good reminder that when we create habitat for upland birds, which is what so many of us listening love, we are creating habitat for a lot of other things in this world too. And it's just a great reminder. I just love reading stories and I am grateful when our listeners send them in. So thank you for sending in your stories. I've been hearing from a lot of people lately. And for some reason, my phone number must be pretty easy. My cell phone number must be pretty easy to find. Tim, did, did you search my phone number when we first connected? Uh, no, I did not. Was it Instagram? I think it was, inst I don't know. No, it might've been Facebook or it was one of the two. And then 
Um, then we set up to have you come up for the show and then you called me because you were lost or something. I don't know. <laughs> it's not true. <laughs> it's not true. I've got Imerix maps, my boy. I don't get lost. Have you, but I've been, but back <laughs> I to that story. Have you ever yeah. hunted rabbits with a dog? Uh, yeah. Dude, it's yeah. so much chaos and so much fun. Oh, it I is. Love it. I did. A, I filmed a story for a couple of other TV shows, Minnesota Bound and Do North Outdoors, maybe like 10 years ago. And we were in northern Minnesota. And I want to say January time frame, Ooh. we hunted for rabbits. And um, yeah, it. I mean, just the loudness of it, just the chaos Such, that comes with it. So much chaos. It is. It's fun. And, you know, sometimes when you when you just slow down and think back to some of the early days, my first hunting experiences, a few of them were out of my grandparents' farm in western Minnesota. And I started with a BB gun and then I went to a 22 and eventually uh, I toted a shotgun run. But we would go squirrel hunting and rabbit hunting every chance that I could possibly get. And rabbits are a heck of a good foe i mean they they oh, are yeah. they will outsmart the best of hunters um one thing i do want to do though is somehow maybe at some point film a, a rabbit hunting show with dogs just for oh, something different awesome. i something think it would yeah. yeah it would be cool um so yeah it's it's fun to go back down memory lane a little bit and i mentioned that we've been getting quite a few people calling in lately and calling my phone specifically, uh, to just talk. Some people are asking questions about dogs, uh, about the show, about different things they watched. I enjoy the conversations when I have uh, the chance to take the phone calls, but the emails have been coming in. I, I think this is a good reminder right now that we are, we are heavy in the planning process heading into this hunting season. And if you have an awesome hunting show idea for us, to be a part of the show. Now's the time to send it in. Tim, you've already submitted yours, so you can't. Yep, I'm out. <laughs> You're out. But anybody listening, <laughs> head to The Flush on Instagram, on Facebook, wherever you like to follow us. Send us a message with your idea because even if it doesn't happen this year, it could next year. Um, I keep a running file of all the different ideas and we have hunts that fall through every once in a while in our planning process. And I go into the file right away and I'm like, all right, what are other options? Because we got to make a television season and that means we got to, we got to keep it moving. So I guess what I'm getting at here is if you're listening and you think you might have a good TV show idea, send it our way. We want to hear about it. And then if you have stories like the one I just read, I love to read them. And if it works, I'll read them on this show from time to time. We used to tell stories about um, dogs that, have, uh, what did we call Brandon, what did we call that segment? You remember the pups that came and gone? We lost Brandon. He came back what, from... What is he, that? He, I, I'm, I remember you talking about it, but I can't remember the name of it. Yeah. Well, we told stories about our hunting dogs and hunting dogs that just made life so rich, you know, and people love to share stories about it. If you have more stories, send them in. And Tim, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry to clear my throat. Have we talked on this podcast since um, since Not you had since, to lay your pup nope, down? No, no, we haven't. Uh, we haven't talked since you uh, were down. We had that podcast that we recorded then. I don't think okay. that that came up. 
Yeah, no, because he was still alive. He was still alive then. Yeah. yeah. It would have been the next summer that I had to put him down. Yeah. What's your favorite memory from that pup of yours? Do you have <laughs> one that stands out? Uh, probably his, I mean, he was probably his first, first hunt. I mean, we, we hunted kind of over when you were here, we kind of hunted over by that area. Um, his first hunt, he was six months old. Uh, we did the NAVDA test. He scored a, um, a one twelve prize one, I think it was, and uh, his natural ability. And so at six months old, I brought him up here at where I live now. And um, the first birds that we got into, he pointed the rooster, and I can remember it. I could probably take us to five feet from where it happened. He pointed the rooster. It flew up. I shot it. All the guys that were hunting with me were running over to the bird because their their dogs didn't retrieve. And I'm like, no, Gus will get it. And he went over, picked it up. And as he's bringing it back, he pointed another one with the, bir- with the bird in his mouth at six months old. And oh, wow. um, I shot that one too. So, oh my and then, goodness. And then that was just, it just ruined everything because he's, he was, I don't know how many thousands of birds he'd been involved in since then. Hmm. 13 years he hunted and he hunted hard 13 years. So how many other bird dogs have you had in your life? Um, when I was, I can remember when I was a kid and I'd go walking with my dad and my brothers. Um, we had one, but Gus was my first by myself. My brothers have had short hairs, um, my whole youth growing up. And, uh, I would always take theirs out, you know, when I was in high school and stuff like that. And then when I moved, um, back when my mom got sick um i moved back to where i'm where i'm from and then i met my buddy that lives that his family's from up here and i came with him and i said the next year i said that's it i'm getting a bird dog so a family friend um was actually raising wire hairs and i didn't didn't know i wanted a wire hair or not but i know the dog breeds or i know the the dog's lineage and stuff like that and i trust the people that that um had the kennel so I got him and yeah, it just snowballed from there and it just got worse and worse. My addiction, because <laughs> if, if you remember, I mean, back in, you know, the nineties, Eastern Iowa was Eastern Iowa would rival anything up here. It was, there was so many pheasants back there and the habitat was crazy. You know, the peak of the mm-hmm. CRP craze. And you've, then, kept, you, you've mentioned here a couple times, but you haven't oh, said Northwest, where here is. Northwest Iowa. Okay. Thank you. Yep. 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 I live up in Northwest Iowa now. I moved here just for the pheasants um, because it's Northwest Iowa. If you want to hunt in Iowa, Northwest or North Central, mm-hmm. even, I mean, Southeast, Southwest is getting better, but it's Northwest and North Central. It's hands down the best places in the state to go hunt pheasants. So um, in two weeks, uh, let's see what, yeah, I think it's two weeks or a week and a half. I know. Sure. So I'm losing track of my mind, but in the next couple of weeks, we have an episode that's going to air from the road trip that we filmed last hunting season in Iowa. And that was part of the auctioned hunt that we did with pheasants forever, the road trip. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I think it's going to be top five birdiest episodes that we've ever produced. Like it's just crazy how many ins- pheasants we, we flush down there, and you know I 
it's not that far from the Twin Cities. So we talked about it quite a bit last year during the hunting season when we, when we were down there and we had hunters that are like, please stop. You're driving yeah. too many people down here. Are you seeing the hunters follow the bird numbers that you've come across? Yeah, a little bit, but it's more fair weather than anything. Um, you know, they're after Thanksgiving, you don't, there isn't anybody around. Um, it's just, I mean, it's, I don't know if it's something that they did when uh, a lot of people did when they were younger. And now that the numbers are, are an uptick, they have gone back out. I don't, I don't really know, but I don't, I mean, opening weekends always insane, but, um, I don't know if it's any, any different than it is every other year around here. Sorry, I just got a message. I I got distracted. Um, no, I, I don't. I don't. I don't think it's any different than than most years. It's about the same amount of traffic. Well, I I know the numbers fluctuate when bird numbers go up, hunter numbers go up, bird numbers go down, hunter numbers go down, and it's a trend that will probably play out till the end of time. But yeah, uh, we're on a we're on a trajectory that I think a lot of us and you specifically and hunters in your region are saying. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, it's not a sleeper anymore. Like this is legit. We have a lot of birds down here. You yeah. are currently in the middle of your annual roadside count. How does how does this work? I mean, because you're not employed by the state yet, you are conducting roadside counts, right? <laughs> this is just me being a nerd, a pheasant <laughs> nerd. That's all it is. This is just me with an addiction to pheasants and. I, I I really want to know more about what, you know, if there's trends, if, you know, there's a lot of habitat that comes out and then there's a lot put back in. I want to kind of see the cycles and, and whatnot of that too, but I don't know. I'm just a nerd about it. I really like driving around, you know, in the countryside in the mornings and, and seeing everything. Cause I even this year, which I can't, I put doves in the mix and I can't, I, there's no way I can count. There's no way that I can count all the doves that I see. So I just took that out this year. I'm like, no, I'm done doing that because you can't keep track. <laughs> well, I know some States report roadside counts and we're going to start getting a lot of numbers coming out in the next couple of weeks from different areas. Minnesota is still one that does roadside counts. Iowa still, uh, reports, um, South Dakota, Bless them, pheasant capital, but they don't like telling people what the numbers are. You know why they stopped doing that? I have my theories, but. <laughs> well, if the reports come out aren't, and they're not as positive, That's then my they're theory. afraid that people aren't going to come hunt. But when they stopped doing the reports, it's when the numbers were skyrocketing. Yeah. And that would have been the time to tell everybody, hey, there's birds out here. Yeah. Instead, you have to go out to find out for yourself. I think most hunters today are smart enough to do a little research. Clearly, there's a lot of people that listen to podcasts, not just ours, but a lot of other podcasts. And people talk about what they're seeing out there, just like you're going to tell us exactly where to find every brood. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if if anybody has any thoughts that like South Dakota doesn't have any birds, just you just stop thinking like that because there's birds everywhere in South Dakota. Mm -hmm. If you want to hunt pheasants, South Dakota's still where to go. And I, it pains me to say that because, you know, like I said, in the nineties, we were, Iowa was right there with South Dakota as far as bird numbers go. 
Now is a great time to make the most of all that tasty meat you harvested. Maybe it's time to try a new recipe, sprinkle on a new seasoning, or make your own jerky and sausage. Trust me, it's not that hard to do, and it can be fun for the whole family. It doesn't matter what you harvested or what you want to prepare with it. Walton's has you covered. Walton's has everything but the meat. That's their motto. Waltons.com has everything, and I mean everything you need to process and prepare your meat. Plus, they have an online community called Meatgistics that's full of recipes and meat processing information. The sky's the limit, my friends. You don't have to be a pro to cook like one. Head to Waltons.com today and enjoy meat processing season. Thankfully, it's a season that never ends. A healthy dog is a happy dog, and a dog's optimal health ultimately starts with an optimal diet. That's why I trust Nutrisource Performance Dog Food to keep Daisy healthy and running to her full potential. Nutrisource now has a full circle feeding plan that can help your dog achieve their full potential too. The full circle feeding plan revolves around their entire lineup of Nutrisource dog foods that contain their good for life system. The Nutrisource good for life system is packed with probiotics, prebiotics, and proprietary minerals that work together to support your dog's heart health and gut health. By combining this system and all of their dry foods and wet foods, you can rotate carbs and proteins like chicken, beef, fish, and lamb to meet and exceed your dog's needs and accelerate their natural desire to eat. Plus, their toppers like kombucha add even more health benefits for our dogs. Learn more about Nutrisource dog foods and the benefits of their full circle feeding plans at NutrisourcePetFoods.com. All right. So I, I'm being honest with you here. This is a real conversation. If I, and I get asked this a lot, if I had the choice of where I would want to go hunting, um, I, I don't know right now that South Dakota would be in my top four. Yeah, and, I would have to. And I, I, would have and, to I and I, I will tell you why. Um, I put, I put Montana, or North Dakota and Montana, kind of one in one A, one B. Those two sure. together. Um, I personally really, really like the variety of birds that are going to get up. I love, as everyone listening to this already knows, I love Hungarian partridge. I love sharp-tailed grouse. I love pheasant hunting. I love when I can go into a field and see all three of them. In South Dakota, I'm, I know somebody listening right now that says, you got that here too. But let's be honest, the pheasant like belt, yes, the pheasant, the stronghold in South Dakota, you're looking at majority pheasants and occasional sharp-tailed grouse, random Hungarian partridge, but not like you go out there seeking them and finding them. And then, you know, the way Iowa has been the last couple of times I've been down there, I've had a lot better hunting in Iowa than I have in South Dakota. I've had yep. fine, fine hunts in South Dakota. They're, the road trip that we did with the Schwins, I want to say three years ago, that might be the bird, the most, most pheasants I've ever seen before. So yes, I get it. There sure. are places that have those numbers, but, um, I don't know. I, I just like the variety that I can get from some of those other places. And that's what pushes South Dakota down and down and down my list, I guess. Um, I'd have so to agree with you. what's your top five? Um, see, this is the bad thing with, with the more and more that I've started going out West more and more. It's, uh, I really love Fort Pier, um, 
grasslands for, but I just hunt grouse. I mean, if I'm only going for pheasants, I'm going to go around here because I kind of know where everything's at. Um, but if I want the variety, I can't wait this year. I'm going to North Dakota and Montana. So I'm going to check um, both of those for Upland off my list. You've never hunted either? I've ne- Not for Upland. I've been up to North Dakota hunting waterfowl a ton, but not okay. Upland. Yeah. Yeah, you're going to be ruined after this. Yeah, well, I'm just, Steve, I'm telling you Steve right now. is Steve's going to ruin me completely because I'm. Olin, you're going with Olin Schlager? Yeah, he invited me up, and I'm like, oh well, I'm not going to turn that down. Yeah, don't turn that down. <laughs> yeah, and you're also going to be ruined, and yeah, now you're yeah. going to have to go every year. But that's probably a good. Ch- I, but I really, really liked um, hunting up in north, um, northern Wisconsin for grouse and woodcock mm-hmm. too. Yep, agreed. Yeah, definitely. I, the but, beauty of the the beauty of upland hunting is you're not sitting in one deer stand waiting and waiting and waiting for the buck of your dreams to come walking by. You can get out. You can go to different places one day and hunt different birds in a different in a forest. That you can be in a field chasing pheasants one day. You can drive a little bit and flush sharp tail grouse, Hungarian partridge, and go into the forest the next day and hunt rough grouse. And it's a beautiful yep. thing. Yeah, I exactly. live in. I live in arguably arguably the best whitetail state in the country, and I could care less to ever shoot a deer in my life again. <laughs> oh, see, I I still really enjoy hunting for whitetails. I enjoy the hunt for everything. I get uh, bored. I get really really bored. I enjoy the challenge. I love outsmarting. I think if we're being truthful, there's a lot of big game. You know, diehard big game hunters. I ask them this all the time: Is the whitetail still? the hardest animal to outsmart and most of them will they'll think about it for a second and they'll say yeah elk are pretty tough but i yeah i think a mature whitetail buck is you know with all their senses to outsmart you yeah that's that still probably takes it you know and so when you do put yourself in position to outsmart one and you make the shot i mean you've done something pretty remarkable and so that's why i I still love every minute of being in the forest. I I really love it all. Just like the turkeys in the spring, I hunt whatever I can, whenever I can. And, you know, I I appreciate, I appreciate them all for, for all the experiences they provide and the the food that they provide. Cause let's be honest, I have a family of four kids that eat a lot of meat. (laughs) There's not a lot of meat on the pheasants, even though I shoot the biggest pheasants, Tim, I shoot the biggest ones. Yes. But even with that, even with that crooked sight you got on your gun, I straightened it out. <laughs> I watched yeah. that video again the other day, as God, I was going man. through all my video clips. I watched it again the other day, and I almost sent it to Scott and you, and just to, yeah. uh, just to rub it in a little bit, but I didn't. Yeah, you do quite a bit of. <laughs> thank you for not sending it. I'm over it. You've um, uh, just if somebody doesn't know what Tim's talking about, the time I hunted with Tim, he bent the sight on the end of my gun <laughs> so that every time I pulled the trigger, I was shooting three feet to the right and I could not figure out why I couldn't hit the bird until I looked down and my sight had been uh, twisted off the tip. So appreciate you. Yeah. Tim. And, and we got to the end of the draw and he just noticed it then. And he, I saw him like adjusting it. I mean, we've got it on film. Troy's probably got it on film. Yeah. That was when I it. also still had a puppy that, wanted to hunt for herself so i'm trying to control the dog control the chaos oh. cameraman everyone's in place birds everywhere and me shooting <laughs> holes in the sky 
Do you remember what Troy said when we walked out of that draw? Is it PG? Can we say it? Yeah, we're at the end of that road and and or we're at the road and he goes, Boy, you guys about killed me in there. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, well he little did he know I was about to take him to the top of a fourteen thousand foot mountain in Colorado. And that's where I almost killed Troy. Uh, well mm-hmm. it was better there than not better there than Iowa, that's for sure. But. That's true. Uh where was I going with this, Tim? Oh, the uh you know, you <clears throat> we're gonna get into the the what you're seeing on the roadside counts here in a minute but as long as we're going down memory lane you've you've done a lot of mentoring over the years haven't you yep why do you do it yeah. uh it, we're, we got to leave it to somebody else i mean it's not if we don't if we don't teach um our loved ones and our kids and i don't have any kids of my own but my friends is my friends have kids and if they're interested in hunting at all i'm more than willing to do whatever it takes like this year, my, well, Alan that hunted with us on that hunt, his middle, mm-hmm. middle son Brody got his first turkey this year and he was with me. So it's just, I don't know. It just, I've shot so many turkeys in my life that I really like seeing the, you know, the excitement and just the, the happiness of watching somebody new that has never harvested a bird before and understand what, what it means to harvest a bird too. You got to teach them that too. Mm-hmm. Um, just to see the joy on their face and remember, you know, I can remember back when I killed my first one and my dad was there, you know, and just, you just remember all of that. And it, it just, yeah, it makes me happy. makes me feel like you're, I'm doing something right in the world. Mm-hmm. So I, one of our loyal listeners has stayed in pretty close contact with me lately on this exact topic of mentoring and kind of sort of calling me out calling other listeners out all of us in in general out for the way that sometimes you know we do these youth hunts and um we introduce these kids to this opportunity but what happens next you know like when they when they show this interest in it they don't necessarily have access to going back and and hunting again. So he wanted me to challenge our listeners on this show to take it to another level. Kids today get blamed all the time for staring at a screen and not being engaged in the outdoors. But he thinks, and a lot of it I agree with, it's that sometimes that's the opportunity that they're given. And if they don't have somebody willing to take them into the field to take them along hunting, then that falls on the parents. That falls on us not giving them those opportunities. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, it's, it's so important. You know, we talk about, I've mentioned this for the last couple of years about just if we all bring somebody new out into the field with us, like we would double the amount of hunters in a year and we could do that. But it's it's a bigger commitment than just bringing them out one time. And I think that's the point that uh, that this listener is trying to get at is it's really a call to us to say, hey, bring that child along, bring that new hunter along and bring them through the whole process. It might be a year. It might be two years. Once a, a youth hunt happens, you, you've just introduced 20, 30, 40 people to something 
that they're now curious about potentially. Where's the follow-up on that? Because I guess the statistics would say that these youth hunts are not working. And they're not working because we aren't raising more hunters in America. The numbers keep dropping. Yep, I so, agree. So this, this model is not working. And I personally think it's, you know, like you, Tim, and this is why you're a great guest to talk about this, you've gone out of your way to grab somebody and bring them out into the field. I try to as much as I can. I've got young kids that I'm doing my very best to try to immerse in the outdoor world. But we have others in our, uh, they have friends, my nephews and nieces. And I, gosh, if I could, I would, I would hunt every day and bring someone with every single day if I could. It's just not necessarily feasible, but I think it's just a reminder maybe, or a plea to say, we're not doing enough. We're not, we're just not. and you know, just to to piggyback on that too. I mean, that's that's kind of the retention thing of of what uh, you know, like pheasants forever, and everybody talks about like keeping them involved and keeping them into it. And like you said, I mean, if you just take that extra time to check in on them kids that went with you last year and see, you know, do they want to go again? Are they still interested? You know, just to because. Um, just to keep them involved in it because even some of like picks kids friends are getting interested in it and they've never hunted in their life before, Yeah, but they see, you know, it, I mean, them kids talk to each other and they get them fired up and they think that they want to go. So then we take, so Alan and I'll take a lot of their boys buddies with us when we go dove hunting, because that's pretty, you know, it's not like it's, that much chaos to where they can Mm -hmm. sit on chairs by us and they just watch and see if they're even interested in it. Right. So that's our first step or they can go with us out into the Turkey blind and and sit with us in the Turkey blind in the morning. So it's just, you got to initiate it and then see if the fire starts. Yeah. Those are great, great examples of ways to bring kids out there and you know, you find ways, but to go back to their friends and their friends are interested you know, that the, the way that those kids are, can all rally around something so incredible, like the outdoors, you know, we, um, a couple of years ago, we got our kids set up with archery equipment. And so they were shooting and then their friends wanted to do the same. So then their friends were shooting, then their friends wanted to do the same. And there were days when we would go to the archery range, um, a few miles from our place and there would be like 15 or 20 kids, a dad that didn't hunt. He got a bow and arrow because his son was so interested. So it can grow so fast. I yep. ended up taking that dad out hunting and here he is a 30 mid 30 year old. who's never really hunted before. Who's interested in now coming out on a hunt because my kids got a bow and arrow and their friends got archery equipment because they saw it, they tried it, they had fun with it. And then their dad gets it and he wants to take that to another level. So you just see these different points of, um, the hunting, like how quickly it can grow. It it does need to be nurtured. There's a lot there that kids are interested about. We do this kids hunt, uh, over MEA every year. My buddies, 
We bring all of our kids along, young girls, young boys, different ages, different levels. Last year, they were pulling the trigger for the first time, a few of them. Uh, one of them shot his first deer. Uh, four of them shot their first duck. One of them shot their first grouse. We hunted for a variety of different things, and it was it is still my favorite of all the trips I have been blessed to go on, I think that one just, it just hits home. And there are like 10 other families with kids that want to go. We're just trying to figure out how much space we have to take all these kids along. Maybe right. this is, maybe, the, you know, this conversation is more of just, just think about it. We're yep. coming up on a new hunting season. Who is it in your world that you could bring with this year? And it, and I, I, I just don't think that it has to be the best hunt. Like, don't wait and save up your favorite spot. If the crops come out, first snow, whatever, blah, 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 to make it the best hunt. It doesn't have to be. It can be just a regular old hunt. It could be a terrible hunt. You don't, you can't script how things are going to go, nor should you. So bring, bring somebody along to just come and be a part of the experience. Well, and then and exactly when you like get it, go ahead. yeah, go ahead. Well, oh, when you ahead. get a, when you get a bird, show them how to process it. Yes. Invite them over for dinner. Eat it and, together. And show them and show them every aspect of the hunt, not just the good, you know, not just the the culmination of shooting the bird and 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 all that. I mean, you walk through and appreciate the habitat and show them why, you know, why what animals live there, why they're living there and what is necessary for, you know, cattails and thermal cover and brood mm -hmm. cover and, you know, just make it like a, a, a nature class and, you know, just teach them everything about it. And especially on them bad hunts. Cause you know, you well, have sometimes to engage somehow. I don't know, man. I honestly, I, I don't know. I, I really think the suck is part of the success. Oh, the ones, the ones that suck and it's miserable when you get a bird and let's say you're pheasant hunting, like those are the hunts you remember. And if you remember it, somebody else is going to remember it too. So just remember that when, just think about that as you're planning this year, who could you bring and how yep. might that in, impact their life? And it, it does go beyond a, a kid's hunt one day a year and leaving them. So Absolutely. I, 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 there's just so much value in bringing them in for a long haul and not trying to uh, sure influence as many people as you can, but if it's one person yeah, for a whole year and that's your goal, that's outstanding. That is a hell of a goal. And that's something to, to celebrate at the end of your hunting season. You, you know, sometimes everyone's like, wow, I'm only make, it's not a big difference. Yes, it is. Because just like, you know, one one child comes over and and tests out my son's bow and arrow. He goes and gets one. His dad goes and gets one. Their daughter gets one. Her friend gets one. Like it it grows that way. It so, does. All right, Tim. Sorry, that was a long rant there, but yeah, I liked it. I liked every liked bit it. of it. All right. All right. Well, then we'll let Brandon keep it in. <laughs> I think I think he ran off to the bathroom anyway. Let's get to the roadside counts. What are you seeing out there, and why do we need to get pumped up? your hunting season okay so i've been since i've lived up here i've been um recording pretty much everything since um 2019 is when i started okay um it would have been 2018 but i never really wrote it down um 2018 we had a, a bit of a flood and it created 
so much habitat just where the farmers couldn't get in. And then the, the, um, nesting season was, was unbelievable. And 2019 I had, so I do it to, okay. So let me just start from the beginning. I do a 20 mile route and I've been doing the same route ever since I've started this thing. Okay. Just because that's all the time that I have, you know, available is 20 miles. Um, so in 2019 was the year after the floods were, were, um, done and they were, they were just getting dry enough that the nesting habitat was good, but you couldn't till it up. I had 8.4 birds per mile in 2019, 2020, the bottom dropped out. Everything got tilled up. There was no extra cover. You know what I mean? There was no like extra um, grass spots out in the middle of the field or really weedy draws. It was all manicured again. It dropped to 1.4 birds per mile. Whoa. Yeah. Now, are you going, and I've I've talked to other roadside counters before, are you doing the same exact stretch during the same time of the day, during the same time of the calendar during the summer? Like, let's say it starts August 1 or whatever. So I start, I start usually August 1st if, if I can otherwise, but it's right in that week. I'll start in that week. And then I go at dawn or at the crack of dawn, which, um, right now it's like six ish. I'll get out there and that's when I start when the sun's up high enough that you can, you know, see that usually pushes them to the road because they're usually there right away in the morning. Um, so I do the same time, the same route. Everything's the exact same every year. Um, okay. So 2020, it dropped a lot. And I mean, we we harvested a lot of pheasants um, 2019. Um, there was so you, few, think, you think it was just your shotgunning skills that lowered those numbers? Ab- absolutely not. It wasn't even <laughs> a factor because I missed way more than I got. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> but anyway, so I think we had a... a not a terrible winter, but we had a stretch that was a little colder, but it really didn't, I didn't think it affected them at all. But the, the loss of habitat to where the hens couldn't nest as good as they did. And it, and it was a factor because the brood sizes were smaller in 2020. I don't think that they were as successful as they were in 2019. So, and that's the other thing that I look for. Like on my pheasants, I do I do how many hens I see, how many roosters I see, how many chicks I see, and I do how many broods. I mean, you know, rough estimation because there might be two broods put together if they're about the same size, you know, whatever. And then the biggest broods that I see. Okay. And I I kind of average those out too on uh if I'm seeing if I'm seeing a lot of really big broods, like I've got a I've got a box that I check that's more than five, less than five, or more than 10. So I've got, I'll put a check on the brood because I get out. I don't do what, uh, I mean, a lot of states, they don't get out of their truck. They just count what they see. I actually get out. I don't walk down into the ditch, but I walk the edge and try to get them to fly as much as I can. Okay. Just to get a better, I don't know. I think it gives me a better estimation on how many birds are there. Like that video I sent you yesterday, there was 11 Uh 11 birds in that brood and there was two of them that I saw run out of the ditch and go into the, the mowed grass after the nine flew up. So yeah, it, it was a big brood. 
So that's uh, a successful first hatch. Yes. And this year, not to jump ahead this year, I think we've had, we had more successful first hatches than in the past years. Okay. Let's, let's stick with where you're at there in 2020, okay. right? And so we'll, 2020, we'll walk us through. Yep. So 2020 was 1.4. Uh, the brood sizes were smaller. Um, but we still, we still harvested a lot of birds. I mean, there was still a lot of birds to be had. And, uh, then you, we got to, hold go on ahead. a second. Before you go to 2021, you said you harvested a lot of birds. Do you feel like your numbers from the roadside counts were matching what was really there come hunting season? No, that was the year that I was telling you about in the past mm -hmm. that I, it was drier and there just wasn't a whole lot coming out to the road. I don't think because of, there was no dew. I mean, 20, 2020 and 2021, there was really no dew on the ground. So based on that, when you see all of these other roadside counts and information come out from other states, how much do you really trust it? I mean, I trust it to give you a general because they're doing, you know, 15 days. And if they're taking averages, you're still going to get, you know, they're going to take out the tops and they're going to take out the lows and then they're just going to hit the middle and then average it. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're, it's a good, I mean, it's a good guess. Because so Tyler Webster and I, we were talking about this last year. We, we thought the numbers were way underreported in North Dakota last year based on what, whatever information they were reporting. Maybe it was like you said, the weather, the dew, there's the factors that change that gave them numbers that were slightly less, but he also thought a late hatch really played a big role in the success of the hunting last season out there. And we saw birds in uh, November when we were hunting or end of October that we didn't shoot at roosters that we didn't pull the trigger on because they were so uh, young and didn't have the colors yet. And yep. um, there, there was a bird that I harvested and I remember it last year, December 17th, and he had barely um, turned. I mean, he was turned, but he still had a lot of like brown on him. Yeah. And I could not believe that that bird was that young, that late December. Sure. Well, it, I guess I only stop your conversation here just because I, as a hunter, I'm always wondering, you know, like you, what, what, do, what can I take from here? What can I take from here? What's out there? What information is good? What's not? Do I trust it? Do I plan accordingly? Sometimes, you know, and we talked this a couple of days ago with Bob St. Pierre when he was on, just go, you don't want to not go hunting based yes. on a report, but it's fun to get pumped up when these big numbers are coming at us. So let's you keep know, moving. So this is the thing that this is the number one factor in my mind in the last, what have I been doing at one, two, three, four, five years, the number one factor that I've seen that makes me think that, um, the season's going to be extremely good is, the number of birds per brood in my mind, if you see a lot of, if you see a lot of those 10 plus broods, like you said, it, that means it's probably a successful first hatch. Mm -hmm. She's got a better odd. I mean, I think personally, she's got better odds of, of getting more of those mature than if she's got to have a second hatch in my mind. Well, yeah, the second hatch is going to be smaller than the first. If a hen has to do it. So you're yes. losing numbers right there. So just the fact that you have larger birds, brood sizes, it just 
it's simple math. There's just more birds on the ground right now out there. Exactly. And yeah. I think so, that, and I think the, you know, if, if she can get them through that first, what is it? Three or four weeks, they, their chances of survival, at least till, you know, fall go up considerable. Right. Well, and that's where we are now. We're a lot yeah. of these, you know, early June, um, mid June, you know, a lot of that hatch is happening. So now we're at that point where we're into August and they're at that stage where if they've made it this far, certainly most of them aren't going to survive the, the hunting season in winter just because of what we know about the lifespan mm-hmm. on average. But we just need a percentage to do that to keep the population going. Right. And, and so let's go to 20, 2020 or 2019 was at 1.4 or was that 2020? No, 2019 was 8.4. 2020 was 1.4. 2021 was 1.5. So it was about the same. And okay. that was our, I mean, that was our drought year also. So there wasn't a ton of dew. I mean, there was dew on the ground, but it wasn't like the last two years. Okay. And brood sizes that year were? They were in the med- the medium range. They were in probably um, five to eight Okay. was the majority of them but there was a lot of them that I saw that were bigger but there was less of them so I imagine it was a first hatch but she only had two or three interesting that made it through huh what about and 2022 let's go to last year okay so last because year because that's going to be fresh for so many hunters in their minds of what they yes. saw in the field yep so 2022 um was 2.94 birds per mile Everything in 2022 was perfect. We had decent rain in the spring, and the nesting heat season was unreal. The um, And I've noticed on the drought years in, in my area that, well, of course, in every area, the weeds still grow, and the grasshoppers are abundant on those years. If she can get them to the first part of their life to get to the grasshoppers, mm-hmm. um. I noticed that the the birds did very well last year. And I mean, last year was the most birds that we've ever harvested was last year. Okay. Do you attribute that to more birds or just that you've learned more because you've been in that area longer, have access to great places that have good habitat? Just 100%. The nesting cover I thought was way better. Okay. And um, the amount of food that they had was unreal. The insects were, were on the last two years. The insects have been unbelievable in any place that I've, you know, walk grass fields for, you know, doing these survey things, even in the ditches. I mean, there was grasshoppers flying everywhere this morning. Hmm. So they've got all kinds of food. And last year I was seeing a lot of birds, a lot of chicks as I'm driving down the road, they were chasing grasshoppers in the middle of the road. Hmm. So there's just, yeah, there was an abundance of food. And I think that's, between that and the nesting cover, I think that is what made the last two years the way they are. If you're an active outdoorsman or woman on the go, then odds are good that you have toys and equipment that you need to haul. Well, our friends at Aluma Trailers, they've got you covered. Their trailers are built by a hardworking team in Bancroft, Iowa, right here in the good old USA. They have models for all of your hauling needs, from ATV and UTV trailers to utility, snowmobile, motorcycle, car trailers, and even fully enclosed trailers like mine. Trust me when I say that Aluma Trailers 
Tow gear like a dream. Their trailers are constructed out of lightweight, strong, corrosion-resistant aluminum, and they are 100% maintenance-free. Plus, they come with an industry-best five-year warranty. Visit alumaklm.com to find a trailer that fits your needs. The Onyx Hunt app is one of the most valuable hunting tools that I take into the field every day, and now that app is available in our vehicles. Yep, Onyx did it. They launched Apple CarPlay. That means when you plug your phone into your vehicle, you now have the option to open up the Onyx app right on the dash of your hunting rig. No more holding your phone while driving, which is obviously dangerous, and you get all of the same layers on your vehicle dash that you get on your phone. You can see the aerial view of your location while driving down the road, just like you'd see if you're using your own Maps, Apps, Waze, or Google Maps. Except now you can find out if the properties around you are open to the public. The landowner's name that owns the land. And if you're in North Dakota, you can see if that land is posted without even touching your phone. To use this feature, simply make sure your Onyx app is up to date. And if you're not an iPhone user, don't worry. Onyx is currently working on the same platform for Android phones too. Apple CarPlay, the latest incredible feature from Onyx Hunt. Always know where you stand and now where you drive with Onyx Hunt. Okay, so last oh. year was 2.9, 2022. 2.9, and they had they had bigger broods. It was bigger, bigger numbers. Okay. What was your average size there? Did you write it down? Yeah, they were they were the 10 plus. Okay. All right. Let's get so to it. Drum roll. I haven't I haven't compiled all like I just did the total numbers. The brood numbers are through the roof. I had um, uh, one brood was 15 birds. Woo! Uh, most of them were 12 to 13, 11. Um, not a lot of lower numbers. Not a lot of like twos or threes. It's all been five plus. Hmm. Yeah, it's been pretty optimistic. Um, today, this morning, okay, so Monday morning, this is the other thing that like, it kind of throws it out of whack a little bit because this morning, last night we got an inch and a half of rain and Sunday it rained from Saturday night all the way through Sunday. So Monday morning was really wet too. And I think that really pushes them to the road. So you think so your I'm, numbers are skewed in, uh, in the, uh, in a, in I mean, the they're, still, they're still there though. I mean, it's still birds. Yeah. You know, it's just they're all on the road, I think. Not all of them, but most of them are on the road. Okay, so, so last last year you were at 2.9 per mile. Yep, I'm at 3.95 this year. <whistles> and I had today was the most birds that I've ever seen driving or doing my, doing my route today. It was 174 birds I saw today. That's the most you've ever seen in the five years of doing your own roadside yep. counts? Yep. Hmm. Man, Monday was 123. How jacked are you right now? <laughs> oh, dude, I'm. It's ridiculous. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh, yeah, I so can hardly wait. I can hardly the, wait. The only crazy, the only crazy, really crazy stat that I have that I don't understand: 2019 and 2020, I saw um, a lot of uh, Huns. I haven't okay. seen the numbers like I did that those two years. Oh. They're there. I mean, you know, you were up here. You saw the cover that we deal with, but they're the small mm -hmm. grain stuff. But they've got everywhere to hide. They've got every field's got a terrace in it, if right. not 15 of them. Right. 
So you kind of got to walk them and they're not the dumbest birds in the world. They'll get out of the way. You know, they'll get off that terrace when you're coming towards them and sit out in that cornfield and let you walk by it 50 rows out. You know what I mean? So we ran into huns on two separate days last year and I only had that one hunt in Iowa. Um, except for when I stopped and visited you on my way through in January, but yep. we, we did run into huns, um, two different times, two different days in different parts of North central. And then as we headed West, uh, we ran into more birds as well. Are they, you know, like the, the, I ask all the locals about it every time I see them, I'm like, are you seeing more of those birds around? What, you know, they're like, well, back in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know back. What is happening right now? What are you seeing out there right now? Is what I always ask people. What are you seeing, Tim, for a Hungarian partridge? Uh, I I only saw um, a total of eight, and I only saw two chicks. So, but that doesn't mean that they weren't there. It just they were on the edge of the corn. I never really got a good look at them. You know what I mean? You know, and I know running after of, them. No, and I I kind of know the areas where I tend to see them. I mean, there's a covey around there in the area somewhere, but we just never, I mean, we come across them once or twice. And if you get a shot, you get a shot. Otherwise, most of the time, the guys that hunt with me don't even know what they are. So they don't shoot. Sure. A lot of times people yell hen. I've done that before as well. Um, When you're getting hen, 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 and then all of a sudden you get a, if they don't come up in a full covey, yeah, um, you know, it's hard to distinguish that really quickly and they're fast. So by the oh, time yeah. you realize it, you're like, oh, dang it. Yeah. But do you run into them pretty regularly when you're hunting? Um, Probably three, four times a year, probably. Well, that's not saying much considering how much you hunt. So then the answer to that would be no, you're not. Yeah, not, not a lot. Now, if you go over towards the you know, where you were at, the north central part, the numbers are higher there. Why is that? Just the type of grain that they're farming? You know, I don't really know. I mean, because it's a it's small grain true. bird. I mean, that's what makes the Dakota, North Dakota, Montana. I mean, there's a lot of wheat, a lot yeah. of those small grain fields, and that's really what makes them. Uh, I want to say perfectly there. I want to say it's probably because there's a lot of people that still have oats that have cattle. I would sure. think that there's some oats around that 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 are keeping them, you know, there. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, then you go back with your next crop and it's got small seeds too. So I would think that that would be, you know, part of the reason. Um, they're a different bird to hunt in Iowa though than than I've been told in like Montana and North Dakota. Why is that? And we Every time that I find them, it's when I'm cutting across the open cornfield. They're on the open? They're not in cover? They're not in cover. Even at where my dad lives in eastern Iowa, he's got a covey right around his house that has been pretty productive. I mean, he's got birds around him all the time, Hungarian partridge. And they'll sit right out in the right out in the middle of that cornfield or bean field and they just they just sit there. Hmm. And then they'll go, you know, they'll peck around and, and sure. get whatever they want to eat, but they don't they usually don't go to cover until it's the last bit of light and then they go to the cover. So, uh, you know, you've got your own personal roadside counts, which is super cool. Um, how about the rest of the state? What are you hearing from your friends around the state in the region? I know you keep tabs with other people too. Are there certain parts that you're like, yes, this is, it's not just here. It's, it's all over the place. And our quail number is going to be 
up at all from what you're hearing? Uh, I know down around the Omaha area and south, uh, the quail numbers are looking really, really good. Um, my Some of my friends that live down there have been seeing a bunch of birds, a bunch of little quail, a bunch of little pheasants. Um, that, that area down there, the southwest corner, actually all the way down the Missouri River, really, it's really good, really good bird hunting. But there's also a lot of of uh, um, habitat down that river. You know, there's sure. a lot of a lot of IHOP, IHAP property properties yep. down there, um, down by Missouri Valley, stuff like that. That if 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 there's people that that have Onyx map, just one time look at the western side of the state of Iowa. There is so much public ground on that side of the state. And I mean, there's bird, good bird numbers down there. Um, Southern Iowa, like down south of Des Moines, the bottom two tiers of counties, the quail numbers are looking okay. They had a really bad winter last year. Uh, I know there was some guys doing some, um, not supplemental feeling, feeding, but they were um, going out in the field and moving a bunch of snow for the quail hmm. just so they could get down to food because it was that bad. But well, I've, you know, it's, I, this has been this past winter, you know, I think there was a lot of, maybe we're just so immersed in this upland world and watching the birds and we shoot them, but then we care about them. I hope you make it. I hope you make it. I hope you make it. You know, I mean, it's a funny thing for a non-hunter to think about, but, um, we're just so focused on these birds and we're watching storm winter storm after winter storm pound the Dakotas pound Minnesota. I know you got some of it down there too. And Nebraska and just like, Oh, they cannot be one pheasant left. And now all I'm hearing is great reports everywhere. And I'm thinking they are a lot tougher than we give them credit for. They definitely are because I thought for sure we were going to, we were going to lose birds just because of the amount of snow. Like when you came up, you know, like Bob said on your podcast last, what was it last week? The, the way that they, um, you see them along the road and they're up there, they say that it might be a little stress or whatever on the birds. Well, that, that area that I took you hunting, there was birds all the way around that section and they were out in the open, you know? Mm -hmm. So I was worried. I think we lost some, but I don't think we lost as many as I thought we did. No. And honestly, being completely honest, when I drove, so I drove through a big chunk of Iowa on my way to Kansas in January for the quail hunt down there and then through Minnesota, what you guys had down there, in my opinion, was just like a, a normal or maybe less than normal winter that North Dakota would get, that Western Minnesota would get. Sure. I just really thought that it wasn't a big deal and I wasn't concerned about Iowa's birds. I was concerned about Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota because and Montana because the snowpack was so deep and the storms were so severe starting in November and it lingered and lingered and then kept coming in March. You know, I mean, that's when I'm like, yep. And I talked to some uh, uh, wardens out in like uh, South Dakota where he said that after the last snow, he goes, I think the last one, the last punch did him in because I didn't see anything come out after that. And I was like, dang it. You know, and now we're hearing that they did survive it. But I really... I thought you guys were looking like prime down there in Iowa. And I know it's what you're watching and what you see, but 
it was 10 times more severe up here. Sure. 10, 20 times more severe in Minot or Bismarck, I think is probably the ground zero for it. Bismarck got hammered record snows, you know, and cold and nasty. And so, well, and even up um, by like Brookings and stuff like that, when we, when we were up that way, it was even in April, it was unreal how much snow was still on the ground. Mm -hmm. But your habitat's looking good, right? I mean, you guys have gotten rain. You're not in drought anymore. Yeah. I mean, we're, we could, you know, you could still always use a week of steady Mm -hmm. rain, but we're, we're looking pretty good. I mean, it's, our habitat is definitely thicker than it was that year you were here. Cool. Are you work with farmers all the time? Uh, what are, you know, I know you talk birds with them when, when you're talking. So are they, are they happy with where things are at from the conversations you've had? Well, I mean, you and I both know farmers and they're never happy, but I mean, (laughs) (laughs) could use a little more rain. Yeah. yeah, The the corn looks, the corn looks really good right now in in my area. Um, it's spotty though. You get down towards the, the center of the state and it's, they've been really dry. Um, but you're still going to get, you know, 250 up to 275 bushel per acre. Mm-hmm. And then beans are beans. They were a little worried about, but this rain's really going to push the pods full. So they're going to be fine. They're some, be some fine. farmers out in the Dakotas, according to some people I talked to, were thinking that their harvest or even Western Minnesota, that the, the crops were in such good shape that they might be able to get after an early harvest out there. I always throw a little caution to that because you get a, a heavy rain in October that stalls the harvest a couple of weeks and now you're back yep. to, you know, a normal year. But based on what you're seeing, I mean, no reason to think that it won't be a on-time harvest or, you know, a lot of crops coming out by the time pheasant season rolls around for you. I would think so. I mean, it's, it's looking pretty good. Like last year we were really spoiled because it was drought and they got it out. I mean, every last week or last year opening weekend, everything was out and it was, there was so many pheasants and it was, it was almost, um, too much, but, uh, every no such thing, out. buddy, there was no dude, such thing. There was, well, I opening day, I limited out in 23 minutes. Yeah. That, you do want it to last a little bit longer than that. A little bit longer than that. Nobody's so feeling I, sorry for you though. So then I started carrying the camera around and I realized how bad all my friends shoot. Oh, were you no. bending the sights on their guns too? I was trying to actually, <laughs> I couldn't because one of them was my gun. I let somebody else carry. Oh, but anyway, so yeah. Um, I will say one thing though, going across South Dakota in what would it have been? It would have been July, just after 4th of July. That was the greenest that I've seen central South Dakota in a long time. That was, it was insane. I know they've had a couple hailstorms go through pier. But that was the greenest that I've seen. And I actually come back through because um, I spread Gus's ashes out there. And I actually walked out to where I spread them just to just to see him because it was actually the day that I or the day that he passed that I, I was out there. So I did my best with my high boots on and made sure that there was no snakes. And I walked out there and I actually kicked up some grouse. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it was it, I think it's going to be pretty good all the way through South Dakota. I don't think that they're going to have too much of a problem. Well, I appreciate you giving us an honest view of what you're seeing down there. Some hunters would want to hold that information in and not tell people that there's a lot of birds in their area. So thank you for that. And I know it's not just Northwest Iowa. It's happening. It's happening, people. You get pumped up. 
there are a lot of birds on the prairie this year. There are a lot of pheasants in the fields. There are a lot of Hungarian partridge, sharp-tailed grouse. And of course, we always want more, but we'll celebrate what we can. And we are counting down the days as we speak right now till we can be back out there with a shotgun over our shoulder and watching bird dogs do what they love to do so much. Tim, best of luck to you this hunting season. I hope to see you and walk a field with you once again this year. You betcha, man. Anytime, anytime. Love talking to you. Appreciate it. Tim Brown, the Bearded Uplander, if you follow him on Instagram. Just a reminder that our episodes are airing right now on the Outdoor Channel. Like I said, we've got an example of what you might experience coming up in Iowa during our Iowa road trip. It was pretty darn incredible. I'm proud of it, and I'm proud of all the hard work that. that our team put into that episode. It really was special. We were there during the first snowfall. I'll just say that. And I'll walk away. I'll drop the mic. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Flush Podcast. Mm -hmm.